All right. Now, we always say around here, because we so believe it, God has saved the very best for when? Right now. And he has something really, really good for us this evening. I am so excited that Springhouse is partnering with Isaiah 117. Uh, the, uh, I just can't tell you how uh, incredible uh, this morning was with Rhonda sharing. And she is here again to, to share the story and to, and to let you know uh, what God has, has done in her and through her uh, and, and helping children across the state and really across the nation. And who knows beyond that because he's a big God and right you just just get so surprised at what God uh, will do and so we're just so excited to have her back so would you guys welcome Rhonda Paulson well good evening um, I'm so excited to be here with you tonight um, it is truly my favorite thing to tell the story of Isaiah 117 house um, because it's not my story it's God's story and it's a story about the God that we love building homes for children that he's never forgotten. My family and I have been on a really cool journey since 2014, and I have loved God my whole life. It feels like I don't remember a day without Jesus. But to see him move in such a tangible way, to see him truly rally his people, to see him actually build homes and just to show his character that way. Like this is who he is. He's mercy and he's grace and he's love. And that's what these homes are. They're mercy and their grace and their love for children on a really, really hard day. But I can't tell you about the ministry without telling you how we got here. Um, because in 2014, I knew nothing about foster care. I didn't know what DCS stood for. I didn't know where the office was located. I didn't know anyone who had walked that journey. Um, I knew nothing about foster care. As a matter of fact, I was a cheer and dance coach at a local university. Um, and I was also an anatomy professor, which meant I worked in the cadaver lab. And then I would go pick up my pom-poms, which isn't the most usual combo, but that was... That was me. Um, I married my college sweetheart, Corey. We'll be married 25 years this year. Woo, yes. Um, and he loves me still. And I love him. Um, and um, two beautiful children, Sophie and Mac. Um, it's, a, it's a good life, easy life. Um, I wouldn't have told you that I had any regrets. But if you had really pushed me, I would have said, well, I actually always thought that we would adopt. Um, I believed it from a young age. It really felt more like a calling. Like I just knew, and as a high schooler, I would tell my girlfriends, I'm going to adopt a baby someday. And in college, I would tell my roommates, I'm going to adopt a baby someday. And we always joke now, like how that never came up in a two-year courtship or premarital counseling, I'm not sure. But sometime during that first year of marriage, I said something like, I can't wait till we adopt. And he was like, what? I was like, yeah, like the Lord has laid this on my heart. I, I, he's, I've just always known I'm going to adopt. He was like, that's funny. Um, I've always known I wouldn't. And I'm like, what? Like, how did we not discuss this? And Corey really, he lets me have my way about everything. Let's just be honest. He believes if mama's happy, everybody's happy, um, but not about this. Like, 
He did not have a heart for this. He did not want to discuss it. I always joke it would be Orphan Sunday at church, and they would show some horrible video about a child not being chosen, and I would be under the pew doing the ugly cry, and he'd be like, you need to get up. People are looking at you. I mean, just nothing. So 1997 till 2014, I call that patience. Um, I was homesick from work, which was rare. It was a Monday. I was homesick from work. I was laying in my bed watching the Today Show. And it was November, and November is National Adoption Month. So they were doing a special on the Today Show all about adoption, and they actually had a judge on the plaza, and they were creating Forever Families right there on the plaza. Well, I mean, I was a mess, you know, because I'm supposed to adopt a baby, and Corey won't let me, and I was just crying in my bed, and... Then they announced that 75% of the children being adopted that day were being adopted through foster care. I knew nothing about foster care, but you can Google anything. And so I grabbed my laptop laying there in bed and I Googled foster care, Northeast Tennessee. And the very first thing that popped up is that if you want to be a foster parent, you need to take classes. It's actually an eight-week study. And this was a Monday, and the classes we needed were starting that Thursday at a church we were very familiar with. Well, that's the Lord, you know. And so I did the only thing a God-loving, passionate woman can do, and I called Corey at work, and I said, want to go on a date Thursday? He said, I'd love to. I'll get mom to watch the kids. I was like, oh, good. And um, I remember we went out to eat. And when we left, I said, want to drive out to Crossroads Christian Church? He was like, on our date? I'm like, yeah. Rhonda. He drove out to Crossroads Christian Church. We pulled in the parking lot. Parking lot was full. He was like, lots of people dating at the Crossroads Christian Church. I I know. We go in, we sit down. We actually ran into a guy we knew from college and his wife. I mean, I don't know if he thought it was like ambush marital counseling, but we go in, we sit down, and a lady stands up and says, welcome to your eight-week study of foster care. Eight-week study of foster care? He was not happy with me. Um, And I always tell, they left this little notepad for us to take notes about the children. And Corey was writing hateful little notes to me and shoving them over. And I was like, we're going to get kicked out. He's like, I hope so. I mean, not happy. Um, and we left that night and we did not speak a word the whole way home. We brushed our teeth without speaking. We went to bed. We got up the next morning and then it was like, well, good morning, Shmoopy. Well, good morning, honey. And we just lived life like normal till the next Thursday when we met in the driveway and we, we got in the car. We did not speak a word all the way out to class. We did not speak a word on the way home. Week three, we drive out to class in silence and we were driving home week three and Corey finally broke the silence and he said, I don't want to do this. And I said, hey, fair enough. I mean, you've been a good sport. We made it three weeks. I tricked you into it. Like, fair enough. And he's like, oh, don't fair enough me, Rhonda. And I said, what? And he said, you and God have wrecked me. I'm a wrecked man. He's like, I, you've known me for 20 years. I like simple, safe, and predictable. And nothing we have learned about foster care sounds simple, safe, or predictable. And I don't want to do this. But now I know the numbers. And now I know the statistics. And now I know there are children in our county that just need a bed. Like, we got to do this. And so we went back week four, week five, week six, Week seven, they took us on a field trip. 
Um, we traveled to the DCS office in Johnson City, Tennessee. This is the first time I'd ever been in a Department of Children's Services office. Since that time, I've been in yours. I've been in several across the state. I've been in several in other states, and they're all the same. There's a lobby, and you get buzzed back, and there's a sea of cubicles, and there's some conference rooms. And so we are sitting in a conference room in Johnson City, Tennessee, and just to paint a picture, no windows, no color at all. Um, State-issued furniture. There was a phone that, like, still plugged in the wall. Dingy, dirty carpet conference room. And the gentleman leading the class said, when a child is removed from their home, they come here. And I thought, here? Like, like, like here? Like, surely he's mistaken because there would be no reason to bring a child here. And so I raised my hand and I said, I'm sorry, sir, but when you say a child comes here, what do you mean? And he said, a little girl slept on this floor last night. And I don't know if it's the mama in me. I don't know if it was being in that space and seeing that carpet. But I remember there was a physical pain in my chest. And my shoulders got real heavy. And my head got real heavy. And I didn't feel like I could pick it up. And I couldn't stop crying. And I just kept seeing her. I just kept seeing this six, seven-year-old little girl who'd left the only mama she'd ever known. And if she was allowed to bring anything, it was in a black trash bag. And now she was sleeping on that dingy carpet alone. And I remember there was tears and then there was anger. I just kept getting madder and madder. And there was this anger welling up at me. And I wasn't mad at the system. And I wasn't mad at mama. And I wasn't mad at that little girl. I wasn't mad at caseworkers. I was mad at God. And so I started yelling at him in my mind. I was like, this isn't fair. That little girl has done nothing wrong. She thinks she's in trouble. Who's going to tell her? Who's going to tell her you're not in trouble? Who's going to tell her you are loved? Who's going to tell her you're beautiful? Who's going to tell her there is hope? Who's going to tell her it's going to be okay? And I heard God say, these are my children. What are you going to do? <laughs> what am I going to do? What am I going to do about a fractured foster care system? Like, I'm a cheer and dance coach. Like, you got the wrong girl. It was too big. It was paralyzing. And so I basically told him No and went back to my very simple, safe, predictable life for almost a year. It was November 5th of 2015, 3.30 in the afternoon. We were sitting at the island doing homework, and I got a call that a nine-month-old little boy needed a home. And I said, ma'am, I'm going to do something very uncharacteristic. And she said, what's that? I'm going to ask my husband if this is okay. That's a good idea. And... uh, I called Corey at work and I said, tell me you'll love me no matter what. And he said, you wrecked the car again. I was like, no, tell me you'll love me no matter what. And he said, what's going on? And I said, we're about to get in the hottest mess we've ever been in. And he said, there's a baby 
I said, there's a baby. He said, I'm on my way. And so he came home and we loaded up our son, Mac, who was nine at the time, and our daughter, Sophie, who was 12. And we drove to the back door of the Carter County Department of Children's Services. And they opened those doors and there was this fiery redhead, chubbiest nine-month-old I'd ever seen. His outfit was way too small. And when I asked about it, they said, well, actually, the outfit he was wearing was so filthy, we had to throw it away. And we tried to give him a bath in our drug testing sink, but when you get him home, he desperately needs a bath. And then they handed me his one possession, was a diaper bag, and I was instructed not to take it in my home for the next 12 to 24 hours so the roaches would crawl out. That's the day that our family learned that this is the way children enter foster care not in some other country, not in some far-off land, in your county, in my county. Children enter foster care in borrowed outfits with roach-infested diaper bags. But he smiled, and he reached for me, and his name is Isaiah. And so we took Isaiah home, and I tell people all the time, well, First of all, I'll say, if you have a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old, so you've not had a baby in the house in nine years, and your husband's just kind of on board with it, you need Jesus. <laughs> but <laughs> you should start reading the Bible. And so we, um, but we were really drawn to the book of Isaiah because there's something about saying yes when God is calling you to something that doesn't make sense, that's bigger than you, that in no way fits your timeline or what you would like to do with your life, when your family doesn't understand and your friends don't understand, there's something about saying yes when God is calling you to something that is bigger than you. That when you say yes, he always shows up. And so all of a sudden in our home, there was more joy and more laughter and more energy, and love that we didn't even know we were missing. Like, it was unbelievable. And so the joke became, we had our own little prophet, Isaiah. And so I would go in in the morning, and I would say, well, what's your message from the Lord today? You know. So that got us reading through the book of Isaiah again. And this time when we read Isaiah 117, it felt different. Because Isaiah 117 says, do good, seek justice, take care of the widow, take care of the orphan. But I've never liked it when people like grab a verse because it like fits their needs in the moment or it's a cute on a coffee cup or hashtag like, what is the context? Like what is going on? Who is God talking to? What comes before it? What comes after it? And so if you really look at Isaiah 117, God is speaking to his people. And if you look at what comes before it, he's actually quite frustrated. He says, you think I want what you're currently doing? Like, you think I want these new moon festivals and these sacrifices? No. They're making me sick to my stomach. What I want from my people is for you to do good and seek justice and take care of the widow and take care of the orphan. And so Isaiah 117 was just a family verse. And we grabbed a hold of that verse and we grabbed a hold of this little boy named Isaiah, and we started walking our first foster care journey. Hardest thing I've ever done. Um, that song, it was so fitting. I looked at the lady that was with me this morning when that first song, This Is How I Fight My Battles. I remember being on my bathroom floor 
beating the tile with that song up as loud as it would go, crying my eyes out. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. But Jesus is in the heart. And if we, if we live our lives trying to avoid the hard, we miss the side of our Jesus. We don't miss him, but we miss the side of him. So we start to walk this foster care journey, and from 2015 till 2017, the things that we would learn, we would not be able to walk away from. We would learn about removal day, You know, I was a high school teacher before I taught at the college level, and I knew about children being removed. And I now say in my ignorance, I thought it was to be celebrated. I thought, yay, removal day. They'll be safe. They'll get a bath. They'll be at school every day next week. Yay, removal. But then God let me see it through the eyes of a child. And there is nothing to celebrate on removal day. That child loses everything. They lose mama, and they will always want mama. They lose their home. They lose what possessions, except what can be grabbed and put in a black trash bag if there's time for that. They lose their pets. Because large sibling groups are hard to place, they have no promise of being with their brother or sister, the only ones that understand this journey. Because we never have enough foster families, they have no promise of being placed in their same county. (coughs) So now they've lost their teacher that's been so kind to them. They've lost their friends at recess. Like every aspect of this child's life comes tumbling down. And the current plan for that child across the United States of America and in this county is that traumatized child goes to an office to sit and wait. Two hours. Six hours. Eight hours. Three days. No bed. No bath. They wait. And they've done nothing wrong. The second thing that stood out to us were the case managers themselves. Somewhere along the way, case managers became the villains. Case managers are not the villains. Guess who's sitting with that traumatized child for two hours, six hours, eight hours, three days? That case manager. Guess who's bathing babies in drug testing sink and picking lice out in break rooms? Guess who's going through McDonald's to get food because this child is starving? Guess who's trying to do a mountain of states paperwork while loving on a traumatized sibling group of three in a cubicle? Can't be done. And the third thing that stood out to us is we need foster families. I have never believed more than now that it is time for the church to rise up. This was never the state's calling. This was our calling. From Isaiah to James. This was our calling. These are our children. But I get it because it's hard. And the call comes at 2 a.m. and they say, we have a sibling group of three. They all have lice. They have zero possessions. Can we bring them to your home right now? It's really hard to say yes to. 
And so in January of 2017, that is 117. I did not plan it. God is funny. I finally said yes to a question he asked me in a conference room in 2014. And my yes sounded like this. I have no idea what you want me to do, but I will do it. And he took off. I remember sitting in a coffee shop in Elizabethton, Tennessee, and Googling on that same laptop, Googling how to start a nonprofit. Because if you want God to have the glory, you put someone totally ill-equipped in charge. I remember in 2017, I had no idea what a domain name was, and I still don't understand who GoDaddy is, but if you give him your credit card, they will give you a name. And so we bought the name Isaiah117house.com. We printed off that Google search, and it had, you know, this is how you start a nonprofit. And step one was form a board. And so we started asking and praying, and we formed a board, and we had our first board meeting on February 26th of 2017. And that's when the dream really took shape. What if there was a home? What if there was a home? What if when a child is going through the most traumatic day of their life, they don't go to a cubicle or a conference room, they go to a home with tons of light and tons of color. And if you need a bath, we don't have a drug testing sink. We have a bathtub. We're a home. Teenager, you need a shower? We've got shampoo, conditioner, deodorant, bra, underwear, dignity. Because you've done nothing wrong. Are you hungry? We had a 15-year-old male. Um, they told me he was a runner. And I said, please tell me that's code for something. And they said, it's code for he runs. I was like, oh, that's what I was afraid you were. And so I was like sitting there in this house in Carter County. I'm looking at the door. I'm thinking, I mean, I'm freakishly fast for my stature. But I'm really thinking like, if he, <laughs> why is that funny? I don't understand. Okay, so. Um, if he takes off toward that door, I can't stop a 15-year-old male from running out that door. I, this is a bad idea. We're going to get shut down. And the caseworker says, he's a good kid. He really needs a shower. And I said, bring him. And so he walks in the door, and I introduce myself. And I said, hey, if you're hungry, you can have anything in the kitchen you want. He's like, what? I was like, anything you want. Any cabinet, refrigerator, it's all yours. And if you want me to order you something, I'll order you something. You want me to make you something? Like, whatever you want, it's yours. He ate for an hour and a half. And later, we would find food that he had hidden throughout the house. Because when you don't know the next time you're going to eat, you, you plan. What if there was a home where a teenager could come and get food and dignity and be reminded that God loves him. What if within that home we could have an office space and the caseworkers, you bring that Mountain Estates paperwork, you tell us exactly what you need in that office, you work on the paperwork, we'll love on the child, and together we'll do this really well. And by the way, caseworker, what's your favorite coffee? What's your favorite creamer? We're ordering dinner. Don't. Don't say you, you don't want any. We're ordering dinner. We know you haven't eaten today. You are not alone. And what about that call to that future foster placement? It may come at 2 a.m. still. 
But what if it could sound like this? We have a sibling group of three. They've all been at the Isaiah 117 house. They played outside and had a snack. They've had baths and dinner. They're now in their new pajamas with their teeth brushed, bags full of stuff, everything they need for the next two to three days. And by the way, foster placement, what do you need? Twin bed, car seat, diapers, formula wipes, dinner. Like, don't go to Walmart. We cannot thank you enough for saying yes. And you're not alone. What if there was a home? And so I headed out into Carter County, Tennessee. Anybody in here ever been to Carter County, Tennessee? Oh, we've got one today and tonight too. We had one in the morning. Good to see you again. Um, yes. Um, Carter, my daughter and I were driving through Smyrna today. Like we, there were so many options. Like, where do we go next? Should we make soap? Should we eat a cookie? Like it was so much. And Carter County does not look like Smyrna, okay? Um, we have several Dollar General. Yes, we do. Um, mm-hmm. And we have a Supercenter Walmart uh-huh. and a state championship football team. That's it. Go Cyclones. That's it. That's all we got. Um, and so I head out into Carter County, Tennessee, telling anyone that would listen about a day they've never heard of. And um, a friend of mine was selling their home. They agreed to sell it to us at a reduced cost of $75,000. But we felt very strongly that we wanted to raise that money and pay cash for that home. And so we headed out into Carter County trying to raise $75,000. It could have been $2 million. Um, and a friend of mine came up and she said, I see what you're trying to do. Just so you know, I've done fundraising for nonprofits for a long time. And if you're going to do this, you have to have a social media presence. And I was like, I don't want the Facebook. You see, as of 2017, I'd never been on the Facebook. I didn't understand why people got on the Facebook. Like, they're posting these beautiful meals, and I'm eating a cold French fry on the floor of the van. Like, it just reminded me I wasn't living my best life. And so she said, I've set up a Facebook page for you. Figure it out. She called back the next day. Did you figure out Facebook? No, I don't want the Facebook. Rhonda, if you're going to do this, you have to have a social media presence. Called back the next day. Did you figure out Facebook? Nope, I don't want it. Well, 25,000 people have watched the video I posted of you and your husband, and the local news would like to interview you. You should figure out the Facebook. I said, yes, I should. And so all of a sudden, every local radio, newspaper, news station, they all wanted to interview me about what if there was a home. And the liking and the sharing and the liking and the sharing, I couldn't go anywhere in Carter County, let's be honest, I couldn't go to the Walmart, um, that somebody wouldn't stop me and say, it was usually a big burly guy, and he'd be like, hey, um, my wife made me watch that video of you and your husband. I was crying in my coffee. We got to get them kids a house. I'm like, yes, the power of the Facebook, it was unbelievable. And then a friend of mine, um, our slogan is love, you're not alone. We want that child to know they're not alone. We want that caseworker to know they're not alone. And we want that future placement to know they're not alone. Um, Later, what was like, duh, that's the message of the gospel. Like, he walked with us in the garden. He led us through the wilderness We still didn't get it, and he sent his son. And as his son left, he promised his spirit, which, like, he wants us to know we've never been alone. And so that's our motto, love, you're not alone. She made 12 T-shirts on her kitchen counter with a cricket. Um, Love, you're not alone on the front, Isaiah 117 on the back. And I was told that you need to post every night at 9 
There's something magical. Um, and so one night at nine, I said, Corey, can I post this picture of you wearing this T-shirt? He's like, yeah. I was like, do you think people think we're selling them? He's like, no. We had 100 orders in 30 minutes. And to date, we've sold over $500,000 worth of T-shirts we weren't selling. <laughs> what? And so all of a sudden, like, people would stop me in the grocery store. They'd say, hey, I'll hold you buggy. Go out to your van, get me a large and an extra large. And I would, like, go out to my, I'm selling T-shirts out of the back of my van. Everybody's liking and sharing. And then children started holding lemonade stands because they heard there were children that needed a home. $7,000 was raised that summer in lemonade. By August, we had $75,000, and we purchased that home for cash, $75,595. Um, it had some work that needed to be done. Um, matter of fact, there was some foundational issues. I mean, I heard those words, but it seemed minor to me. Um, and the state asked if we remove every load-bearing wall on the first floor. And so I called a contractor friend over, Travis, it's all I knew. Uh, contractor, coach softball. I was like, hey, Travis, do you think we could fix the foundational issues and take down every load-bearing wall in this home for free? And he's like, what? Rhonda, what? Let me see what I can do. Well, I didn't know this, but God did. Travis had just been hired by the largest developer in Johnson City, Mitch Cox Companies. And we were called into Mitch Cox Companies four days later and told if we would demo that house to the studs in the next five days, they would rebuild it for free. All new plumbing, all new electrical, all new walls, windows, roof. And so I took to my friend the Facebook and um, I said we needed to demo a house and 23 firefighters showed up and demoed that house in two days. Yeah, it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. The entire community rallied. The football team held a fundraiser. The nursing home held a bake sale for the children. The car show gave us money. Like every aspect rallied. And in less than a year, we had a debt-free home with a fully funded first year's budget in the bank. It was beautifully remodeled. Every closet was full. Every cabinet was full. 40 trained volunteers. And we were ready to serve the children of Carter County. It was unbelievable. And I look back at that time, and it was such, and still is, but it was just this gratitude just overflowing all the time. I just couldn't believe what God had done. Like, I've loved him. I've believed in him. I've seen him my whole life. But this was different. This was God moving people to build a home for children that he had never forgotten. And I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe he had done this small town miracle. And I just kept thanking him and thanking him. And I say now, he was up there laughing at me. He was like, she thinks there's going to be one home. That is so cute. Like, bless her. Because if God's building homes for children he's never forgotten, he's not going to do that just in Carter County. And so then Washington called, and Sullivan, and Green, and Knox, and Severe, and Jefferson, and Rutherford, and Bradley, and Coffee, and Franklin, and Grundy. And then Indiana called because he's not going to just build houses in Tennessee. He's building houses for children he's never forgotten. And then we received fake emails, fake websites, fake names, and we were told that a small documentary company was coming to visit us and film us for two days. And on the day that that small documentary company was supposed to walk through the door, a guy by the name of Mike Rowe, Dirty Jobs, 
he walked through the door. And they filmed us for a Facebook show called Returning the Favor. And our episode aired on March 9th of 2020, and 2 million people watched it. And on March 13th of 2020, the world shut down. But God did not. 35 states and two countries reached out in the year 2020 during a global pandemic, wanting to build a house for children in their community. It's unbelievable. That's how big God is. And I was on the phone with this lady from California, and she said, how many children are in custody in the state of Tennessee? And at that time, there were 8,000. I said, 8,000. She said, there are 8,000 children in my county in California. And I got off that phone and I was right back in that conference room and I was on my knees and I couldn't stop crying because it's too big. And you got the wrong girl. It's too big, God. It's too big. And all of a sudden I saw myself and I was holding this little bitty rock, little bitty rock. And God kept saying, drop the rock, Rhonda. Drop the rock. Just let go of that little bitty rock. And I let go. And the rock fell and it hit a body of water and ripples just started going he said, you drop the rock. I'll take care of the ripples. That's what he does. That's what he does. And not just in my life. He is calling you to something. He needs a yes from you for something. He wants to use you for something. But it's scary And we sit there in that conference room and we think, not me, it's too big, you've got the wrong girl. But this is the God that we serve. When you say yes, he fully equips you for whatever is ahead. And then you would think that would be enough, but not for the God that we serve. He then blesses you for it. Isaiah 119 says, if you are willing and obedient, you will taste the best of the land. Isaiah came to us in November of 2015 at nine months old. And in March of 2017, he was still in state's custody with us through foster care. And he had a full sibling brother that was born named Eli. And the caseworker called the day he came into custody. And I hung up the phone and I was crying. And Corey said, why are you crying? And I said, well, I begged you for Sophie. And I begged you for Mac. And I tricked you into Isaiah. Like, you don't want any more babies. Like, I get it. And he said, oh, we're taking that baby. He called the caseworker back. And so Eli joined us through foster care. In in November of 2018, in one of the most full circle moments I'll ever experience, from watching National Adoption Day in 2014 to participating on 11-17, there's a 117 right smack in the middle, when they became Isaiah and Eli Paulson. God is good. All he wants is a little yes. Thank you.